Well, if you want to keep Acts 4 open in front of you, Yeah, we're going to measure our time looking at the prayer, actually, of the apostles at the end of Acts 4. We'll be looking a little bit at the events that lead up to that prayer. But it's a big question we've already been thinking about tonight. How should Christians respond to a hostile world? And we've already seen there's plenty of answers we can give to that question. Sometimes we might say, well, just keep your head down. Other times sort of fight fire with fire. Um, you know, give as good as you get. Other times we just try to win the hostile person over. But how should a Christian and a community of Christians respond when we face hostility in the world? Because tonight's title sort of takes it for granted that the world we live in is hostile often to Christians and to the Christian message. And any study of the book of Acts bears that out. Um, Because in some ways, I think we've seen the last couple of weeks, the book of Acts, it paints an inspiring picture of the early church. If you just look back to Acts chapters 1 to 2, and you just sort of see up to now, everything has been going really well. So Acts 2 verse 41, 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus at Pentecost. A phenomenal number. And then Acts 2, 42 to 47, there's this inspiring picture painted of the community life of the early church. Let me just read verse 42 of chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And the result of that you see in verse 47. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. See, Acts, it paints this wonderful picture of the early church. It's a loving community. It's a prayerful community. A community marked by God's power and by miracles, it's a, people, it's a community that, that, that means people are coming to faith in Jesus every day. See, it's a really attractive picture that the opening chapters of Acts paints. And for some people, when they read those chapters, it's sort of too good to be true. They sort of think, maybe this is an unrealistic picture of the early church. It's idealized, it's sort of... Church history, but viewed through sort of rose-tinted spectacles. You can't quite trust the picture you get in these opening chapters. But you see, in reality, you could only come to that sort of conclusion that this is church history through rose-tinted spectacles if you stop reading Acts at the end of chapter 2. Because sort of by chapter 3, and from very early on in the book, the early Christians are facing opposition and persecution. And the focus for tonight is we're looking at the first prayer recorded for us in the book of Acts. And it's recorded in response to hostility and oppression. We're told up to now that the Christians are praying a lot. This is the first time we see the content of one of their prayers. And see, what Luke's trying to tell us in Acts is that these early Christians are just like Christians throughout history. Christians will always face opposition in their desire to live for Jesus. And more than that, we're going to see in the coming weeks that God often chooses to use times of opposition and persecution to expand his church, to grow it, and to demonstrate to his people his character of grace and compassion in those very times of hostility and opposition. But for tonight, we're just going to focus 
our time on the prayer, beginning from verse 23. Because actually we can learn a lot from a prayer like this one in our thinking about how to respond to hostility. Because actually every time we read a prayer described by that first generation of Jesus' disciples, we need to sit up and pay attention because that first generation of Jesus' disciples had their understanding of prayer and their understanding of the Word of God shaped by the risen Jesus himself. If you want to just keep your finger in Acts 4, but look back to the end of Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 24. That's on page 1062 in the Church Bibles. Again, we've said already, Luke's Gospel and Acts are are two parts of the same story. So again, we just look back at Luke 24, verse 25. This is Jesus on the road to Emmaus, explaining himself to some of his disciples. He says, verse 25, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Or verse 44 in Luke 24, he said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. See, when we come to Acts, this group of believers spent 40 days with the risen Jesus and he explained the word of God to them. And he explained how they could pray to God. And he explained what the word of God told them to expect in this world. So basically, when we look at these prayers, we're looking at people who have heard, learned firsthand from Jesus how to pray and how to respond to hostility. So we're just going to look briefly at the context of the prayer before we turn to the prayer itself. It's back in Acts 3. Well, he didn't read for us, but Acts 3. Peter and John heal a man crippled from birth in the temple courts. 3 verse 6. They do it in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And then by verse 8, this man is walking and jumping and praising God. I was a kid, we did a song about that, and some of you may know it. It's a classic. But yes, he's clearly demonstrating that Jesus has healed him. So a huge crowd gathers round. And Peter speaks to the crowd, just as he did back in Pentecost in Acts 2. And Peter tells them about Jesus. Jesus is the servant of God, promised in Scripture, verse 13. Of chapter 3. He was rejected by men. He was killed and raised to life again by God. And verse 22, he is the one promised by Moses and all the Old Testament prophets along with him. So Peter's got a captive audience because of this healing and he uses it to tell the crowd about Jesus. But then Acts 4, verse 1, where all he began, the priests and the captain of temple guards. And the Sadducees come and they arrest Peter and John. They put them in prison overnight. And the majority of chapter 4 that was read to us is Peter and John contending with those religious leaders. So that by verse 23 of chapter 4, the religious leaders reluctantly let Peter and John go. And they return to the other believers and they pray together in response to what's happened. And as a result, verse 31... They are filled with the Holy Spirit and they speak the word of God boldly. So in a sense, kind of the first 
pointer we get in Acts 4 as how to respond to a hostile world is very straightforward. But it is so simple that we actually miss it. That we need to pray. And we need to know the God that we're praying to. If we're going to be able to respond in a Christ-like way to hostility, to know, as Charlie said, when to sort of contend with people and when not to, we actually need to be led by the Spirit of God and to know the character of the God that we are representing to people. So I just want us to spend a bit of time thinking what this prayer in Acts 4 tells us about prayer and about the God Christians pray to. Because first of all, I think this prayer tells us that Christians pray to a God who is in control even of his enemies, even of the very people who are being hostile to Christians. Let me just read verse 24 for us of this prayer. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. I remember um, a pastor I had up in the north of England and he always sort of warned us um, as a church to be wary of preachers who try to dazzle you with Greek. So teachers you say, what the, what the Greek really means is this. Um, but uh, let me dazzle you slightly with some Greek tonight. Because the word for sovereign Lord in verse 24 is the Greek word despotes. You like my pronunciation? And it's the same Greek word that we get the English word despot from. Again, that word despot meaning, in a sense, a dictator. Someone who is in complete control, who won't warrant anyone to challenge him in his rule. So the early Christians are saying by addressing God as despot as, that this is a God who is in control completely of their lives, even of his enemies. And we need to see that wasn't an easy thing for these early Christians to believe. Because again, the people opposing them look really, really strong. If you flick back to verses 5 and 6 of chapter 4, we get this list of who was there at this council that Peter and John appear in front of. And the names should really ring bells for us if we've read Luke's Gospel. Verse 6, Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. See, these are the very people who had Jesus executed just a couple of months before. So Peter and John are standing here in front of the people who Jesus, the Son of God, they were able to execute him. So what are they going to do to Peter and John and the other disciples? They should have been terrified of these men by rights. But we actually look at verses 19 to 20 of chapter 4. And we actually get a very different picture. Because the Sanhedrin dismissed Peter and John by saying, Do not speak any longer in the name of Jesus. Verse 19. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. See, Peter and John are saying, actually, no matter how scary you look, no matter how powerful you look, 
our allegiance has to be to the sovereign Lord and what he tells us to do. It's an amazing demonstration, actually, of how the Holy Spirit has changed these men. Again, we just need to remember, again, a few months before, they ran and hid when Jesus was arrested. But here, verse 8 of chapter 4, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus had promised he would be. Back in Luke 12, 11 to 12, Jesus said, When you're brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you'll defend yourselves or what you'll say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. See, Peter and John are able to stand up to those opposing them because they know the power of the God they serve. And they're being transformed by his power as his spirit lives in them. Again, looking at the the content of their prayer, verse 27 and 28, they're saying even Herod, even Pontius Pilate were under God's control when they sentenced Jesus to death. That is an amazing truth for these men and women to hold on to. Again, on Good Friday, it looked like Jesus' enemies had won. But they're praying here, verse 28, they only did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Behind the scenes, it was God who was in control. Just as God is in control of the hostility they are facing right now. Again, no matter how powerful the Jewish ruling council look, It's God who has the real power. And it's God who's with these disciples. And again, just as that is a difficult truth for these early Christians to pray, it's a difficult truth for us to pray as well. Because we just need to be honest that so often it's the opponents of Christianity that look so impressive. They are so clever, so attractive, so, so witty. But we need to learn from these early Christians. We serve a God who is in complete control even of his enemies. Even when it looks like his people might lose the fight, God is at work. So it looked like God had lost the fight at the cross. He actually won it. But it should be said that word in verse 24, despotes, to describe God. It's actually not frequently used in the New Testament and partly that's almost certainly because of its negative connotations because the God Christians pray to, he's the sovereign Lord, yes, but he is far more than that. This prayer tells us he's also a God who is familiar with the hostility of the world. Because again in the prayer the early Christians quote from Psalm 2. Let me just read verses 25 to 26 for us. They say, You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. They've already suggested that, that they used this prayer probably because Jesus showed them that it was a psalm that was talking about him. And we need to see here that this psalm, Psalm 2, written about a thousand years before Jesus came to the world, King David prophesied that rulers like Herod and Pilate would gather together against Jesus. 
And more than that, that all the way through Scripture, God is honest and clear with his people that anyone who trusts in him will face the hostility of the world. See, that went for David, and it went for Jesus, and it goes for every Christian sitting here tonight. See, God knows all about the hostility of the world, and he tells us about it through his word. He's never taken by surprise by it. But it's worth sort of um, pausing for a minute and asking just where does that hostility towards Christians and the Christian message come from? And there's kind of a couple of answers we could give to that question. Sometimes people are hostile to the content of the message that Christians have. And that's certainly the case for the religious leaders here in Acts 4. Just again, look back to verse 2 of Acts 4. They were greatly disturbed because Peter and John were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So that would have been a really offensive message to the religious leaders here. See, the Sadducees, they're mentioned by name in verse 1. It was offensive to them because they didn't believe there would be a resurrection from the dead. So they hear these people preaching that in the temple and they say, arrest them. Because that's not going to happen. The Sadducees just didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. But for others on the council who maybe did, like Pharisees, for them the offense would come that it's in Jesus the resurrection from the dead will come. The very Jesus they had, had executed a few months before. See, sometimes it's the Christian message that provokes hostility from people. And it is a provocative message Luke wants us to see. Look at verse 12 of chapter 4. Just an amazing statement by Peter. He said, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. See, that is deeply offensive to people in first century Palestine, to these Jewish leaders. This Jesus, who they had executed, he's the only way they can be saved. That is offensive to them. And it's offensive to people in 21st century Britain as well. That sort of exclusive claim that it's only through Jesus that people can have life with God. So sometimes people are just offended by the content of the message. And other times, they're offended by the messengers themselves. Just look at verse 13 of chapter 4. Because again, that's the case for these Jewish religious leaders. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. See, they're just offended by looking at these guys because they haven't been trained the way they have. They have not been schooled in rabbinical law. They are ordinary, unschooled men. So why should we listen to them? And again, that's another response people can make in the world today. Christians look really unimpressive sometimes to outsiders. And if we're honest, I suspect that a lot of Christians here tonight can think of Christians that are completely unimpressive that you've met. Perhaps even you're not that impressed by yourself. Christians just don't look the part. They don't seem to be these powerful demonstrations 
of the gospel, often actually we look pretty feeble to people. And that can be compounded by some outsiders who maybe just have had difficult experiences with Christians. Christians who let them down. Christians who have been unloving. Churches that have just been hypocritical. So often it can be the messengers who offend people when it comes to the Christian message. But ultimately, Psalm 2, that these Christians are praying with, tells that the source of that hostility is far deeper in people's hearts. The source of that hostility comes from the fact that naturally we are all hostile towards God. We like to think that often we are on a journey towards God where we're looking for Him, we'd love to know Him, but actually the Bible says that every one of us without Jesus is an enemy of God. We don't want to know who God is and we rage against Him. We resent His claims over our lives. So actually the hostility towards the Christian message is pretty deep set in sinful humanity. And we shouldn't be surprised as Christians when we face hostility. Because God's actually very honest with us to write his word about it. But often we are surprised. Often we kind of like to say, well, this should be easier living as a Christian, this should be easier living for Jesus. And we kind of beat ourselves up sometimes. I think if I could only learn the right spiritual disciplines, if I could only have the right spiritual experience, if I only read the right books or listen to the right preachers, then I would sort of crack the Christian life and it would, I would just coast from that point on. And when I look at these verses myself, I mean, in my own experience recently, it's not so much the enemy outside that I struggle with, the the nations, the peoples here, it's more the hostility of my own heart to God's ways. The hostility, just yeah, of of not wanting to submit to God. It feels like my own heart plots against me and rages against God so often. And I can sometimes just feel like losing heart. I'm surprised, actually, by how difficult I find it to live for Jesus. But we need to see God is never surprised. The early church learnt that from Jesus himself. In the night he was betrayed, recorded for us in John 16, he tells his disciples, in this world you will have trouble. But then he says something really precious to them. Take heart, he says, I have overcome the world. And that sort of points us again just to an amazing truth. That not only is God familiar with suffering, not only is he not taken by surprise by it, in the person of Jesus, God has overcome the hostility of this world. See, in entering our world, this sovereign God that the early Christians are praying to actually experienced the suffering of a hostile world. And then at the cross... He overcame that suffering and hostility. And he invites us to share in that victory. That is why these Christians are praying to him. Because we can't defeat our enemies ourselves, God. We need you to work in us. See, Christians pray to a sovereign God, a God who's in control, but also he's a God who is familiar with suffering. 
because of Jesus. And when we pray to him in experiences of suffering or hostility or struggle, we're actually praying to the Son of God who knows what it is like to suffer. And therefore he's able to help us when we suffer. Again, if God only knew what it was like to suffer, then we wouldn't pray to him because he couldn't help us. If God could only have the power to help us, but he didn't know what it's like to suffer, we probably wouldn't pray to him either. But these believers know God is both those things. He is sovereign and he's familiar with suffering. So they pray to him when they face this hostility. I think the final thing that that prayer has to teach us that when a Christian or a group of Christians prays in response to struggle and hostility, they're praying to a God who can work miracles. Again, you sort of look at the boldness of the early believers' prayer to God in some ways, but then you look at the way God answers it. That's verse 29 to 30. Now, Lord, they say, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. See, God answers their prayer here. See, now I don't believe that this bit of Acts tells us that every time a group of Christians pray together. There will be this powerful physical demonstration that God has heard their prayers. But again, as John says, you come to First Tuesday this week, we'll see what happens. Because God actually does sometimes give those solid reminders that he's heard their prayer. But, but again, we forget that at our peril. So I'm convinced that, that, that for me and for maybe for many of us, we've lost that sense that God has the power to answer our prayers, that he does hear us when we pray, and he will answer. Because instead we sort of pray with just no expectation that God is going to do anything. But if we pray like that, we've forgotten the lessons of Acts 4. We pray to a God who can work miracles and who can change us into the men and women that he wants us to be. And again, we can notice in Acts that the miracles that are described there, they're never simply about making people more comfortable. And so often that's the sort of miracles we're asking for. They're they're demonstrations of power that enable others to see who God is. And those are the sort of things we should be praying for. Praying that God would so change us that people can't help but see Jesus and be drawn to him. See, God is able to work miracles and we need to expect him to have the power to change us when we come before him so as we finish how do we respond to a hostile world where Acts 4 sort of tells us that we do need to pray that again we we could just look at what Peter and John say in Acts 4 and take those phrases and, and repeat them to others, But actually those phrases came out of a dependence on God and on his spirit that is reflected in the prayer in the latter half of Acts 4. See, we need to pray and ask God to give us the strength and the boldness to live for him 
and speak for him and to know how to respond to hostility. Knowing that actually, as we said at the beginning, there will be different responses at different times. But we need to realize we will face hostility in this life. We'll face the hostility of of an unbelieving world, of a subtle enemy in the devil who will always try to erode our trust in God. We'll face the hostility of our own hearts that plot against us when we live for Jesus. But that is why we need to know the God we pray to and pray to him. He's a God in control even of his enemies. He's familiar with suffering and he's overcome it in Jesus. And he can work miracles in and through his people. Because something that I forget when I think about people who are hostile to me when they know I'm a Christian or hostile just to the Christian message or to the church is actually a truth the Bible is really clear about. And we've already touched on it tonight. Everyone starts out hostile to God. Everyone starts out hostile to the gospel. Everyone in this room did. That's the message of the gospel. And whether you can point to a vivid conversion experience or not, God actually had to work a miracle in your life to open your eyes to who he is and to draw you to himself. And so the only thing that will transform others from being enemies of God to being friends of God is the power of God in the gospel through his spirit. And that's why we need to pray. And that gospel, it's a message, it's not about religion or about Christendom or about just a framework for living. It's a message about the person that Peter speaks about in Acts 3 and 4. Jesus Christ of Nazareth who's fully God and fully man, who's rejected by the powerful, who was killed, but then who rose again to give life. And Peter says we can't afford to go without the life that Jesus gives. Verse 12, again, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which We must be saved. That is a provocative message, an offensive message. But Acts 4 tells us it's also a life-transforming and life-giving message. Because standing next to Peter when he says it is a man who was crippled for 40 years, who's walking again. And Peter, as he says it, is this unschooled, ordinary man, but he's standing up to religious authorities because of the Holy Spirit living in him. And that same Jesus is able to transform us into men and women who love him and are in tune with his spirit, who will know better how to respond to a hostile world, and who above all will entrust ourselves to the hands of a sovereign God who knows us and who sent his son to rescue us. I want to play a brief um, video clip, if it works, um, that I think suitably sort of lifts our eyes, I think, to the Jesus that Peter and John were preaching about in Acts. 
the Jesus who has the power to change us and enable us to respond to hostility. So we'll just play this clip and then John is going to lead us in a, in a sort of final time of, of prayer and response to what we're looking at. So hopefully this will work.
Well, as we, um, as we get together and pray in our groups around the tables where we're sat, um, as well as, I think, praying off the back of what Richard's been sharing and, and praying really that I think our minds will be transformed by this knowledge of this, this is what God is like, um, as well as praying like the disciples for boldness um, in the context of hostility. I think it's right that we acknowledge too that um, our world um, is hostile elsewhere too in, in more overt and clear-cut ways than we see in this country. Open Doors, a charity which supports persecuted Christians, has recently produced um, the annual list of the most persecuted places in the world and uh, North Korea for the nth year in a row. I don't know how long they've been there, but they continue to remain at the top. Um, and I think it would be good to pray um, for Christians there. Um, apparently 70,000 um, Christians in labour camps um, in that country um, a really tough place to be and particularly at the moment um, as not only economic hardship but also famine um, hits that country and um, people struggling to scrape together one meal for the day um, talk of them eating acorns and um, parents abandoning their children just out of sheer um, devastation and inability to be able to provide for their needs um, but in this context, in this context of great persecution, um, Christians respond in a way that I think Peter and John would have responded looking at that prayer. Um, they, they ask not for comfort, um, but they, they ask for, um, for help and boldness in this situation um, and an ability to continue to help those practically um, who are less fortunate than themselves. Um, they, yeah, they continue to just want to uh, be great um, ambassadors for Christ in that country. I think that's such a challenge. Um, but it would be good to pray as we're around our tables for that country, um, for Christians there, um, and yeah, particularly for for their their great desire. Praise God for their desire to um, to show mercy to those around them and to continue to speak Christ boldly when rationally it would seem to make sense for them to hide away in a little huddle. Um, so yeah, praise God for that and do pray for them as well as pray for one another um, on some of the things that we've been challenged by. Uh, very briefly, just two or three minutes, so maybe one or two of you around your tables can pray for some of those things and then I will close in, in a couple of minutes. Thank you.